lot of what we're seeing when we say the decline of retail is really we're seeing consumers just say, I don't want to be my own delivery vehicle anymore. And anyone who traded in commodities, whatever that was, they're going away because there are all of these new avenues like e-commerce or I like to joke that the, in the Sears catalog, you could buy a house. So so the new Sears catalog is Amazon or the internet. The reality is, is in a lot of ways, we're just going back to retail behavior that we always sort of had before the mid-century love of the automobile and, and this sort of massive expansion of, of retail. Welcome to Infinite Earth Radio. We believe that in a world of finite natural resources, a smart and sustainable future is only possible by lifting up people and unleashing unlimited human potential. Infinite Earth Radio will not only help you learn from bright, visionary civic leaders who are building smarter, more inclusive and sustainable communities, but you'll discover how you can bring these ideas to your community. And now, here are your hosts, Mike Hancocks and Vernice Miller-Travis. Welcome back to Infinite Earth Radio, where we talk with thought leaders and change agents who are transforming the future by building smarter, more sustainable and more equitable communities. This is your host, Mike Hancox, and my co-host today is Kate Meese. Kate, welcome back. Great to have you here today. Thanks. Always a pleasure. We're really excited to have a, an upcoming graduation to announce. Our Civic Spark fellows are graduating August 29th, so I wanted to give them a big shout out and thank them for all the hard work they've put in. As a reminder, uh, the Civic Spark program is a, a governor's initiative in California, it's an AmeriCorps program, and it's dedicated to building capacity for local governments and communities to address climate change and water management issues. So the fellows have spent about 11 months. They've put in 1,700 hours of service each and collectively over 100,000 hours total this year. So they've been working really hard in communities across California, and I just want to commend them and give them a, a shout out for all their great work. Yeah, and I'm not had the the privilege of working with the folks in the Civic Spark program, but I have had the honor of uh, interviewing a number of them here on the podcast, and they are amazing young people. So I can't imagine that that is just a, just a fantastic program for the folks in California. Absolutely. So, Kate, today we are going to be talking about the growing inventory of empty retail space in the United States and what strategies communities can take to get these properties back into productive reuse. And we have a great guest who is an expert on the subject. Do you want to introduce our guest? Sure. I'm so pleased to have with us a, a friend and colleague, Michelle Reeves, who's an urban strategist with extensive experience in revitalizing mixed-use developments, mixed-use districts. She's done a lot of work on placemaking, retail leasing, development consulting, and project management. In her consulting practice at Civilis, she helps cities renew their urban places. So we're so pleased to have Michelle with us because, as you said, we are struggling with a, a decline in retail. We've had nine retail bankruptcies this year, probably more than that by, by this time. We've seen companies like JCPenney, Radio Shack, Macy's, Sears announcing store closures. A sports Authority is liquidated. Payless has filed for bankruptcy. I mean, we saw 30,000 jobs lost in March alone. So this is a huge issue facing our communities. And Michelle, I'm so glad you could be with us today to talk through a little bit about how communities can begin to respond to this issue. Great. Well, I'm excited to be here. So 
you work in communities all over the United States, Michelle, and I'm, I'm wondering what impact you're seeing already from the decline of retail. So it's kind of funny, even that phrase decline of, of retail, I would call it sort of a change in retail. And I think one of the things I would just say fundamentally about retail, there's kind of a saying we have inside retail that retail is about reinvention. And that's always true. Retail is always changing and it's always uh, finding sort of new avenues and expression for itself. So what we're kind of seeing when we say the decline of retail, in my mind, is we're seeing the decline of the mid-century experiment in retail, which is different than, say, an overall decline in retail. So I, I guess just right off the bat, I would say communities need to respond to kind of the realignment of retail. And to me, a lot of what's happening in retail is more um, almost a function of going back to the fundamentals of what made retail successful. Let's say sort of at the turn of the century, we got our commodities delivered. You could get a house from the Sears catalog. And uh, we used to go into town in concentrated areas where retail was in one place to sort of have this experience or be able to try stuff on or, um, you know, have that kind of brick and mortar in-person experience. The mid-century experiment in retail um, – was really catastrophic in in several ways. One is, is we just went through and just massively expanded our, our retail supply in a lot of cases without actually adding new spending dollars to communities. And then accountants took over the retail instead of actual retailers, which is how we ended up with big box. And then everyone became their own delivery vehicle. So a lot of what we're seeing when we say the decline of retail is is really we're seeing consumers just say, I don't want to be my own delivery vehicle anymore. And anyone who traded in commodities, whatever that was, they're going away because there are all of these new avenues like e-commerce or, you know, like I said, I like to joke that the, in the Sears catalog, you could buy a house. So so the new Sears catalog is Amazon or the internet. Um, but the reality is, is in a lot of ways, we're just going back to retail behavior that we always sort of had before the mid-century love of the automobile and, and this sort of massive expansion of, of retail. So to, this is a very long answer to your question. I think the biggest impact that these changes in retail are having is that it's leaving us, it's kind of a, it's a retail problem and a real estate problem because one of the biggest things it's doing is leaving us with these really challenging land use issues and a lot of vacant buildings that are in some cases difficult to reuse. So and that's one of the things we can get into a little bit more, but some of the types of buildings that are most flexible and breathable and changeable, those ones weather these changes better than, you know, a giant box in the middle of nowhere that everyone has to drive very far to. So let's talk about those those giant boxes. We know that the number of shopping malls has outpaced demand. And in the United States, we built a lot more shopping space per capita than other countries, five times more than the UK and 10 times more than Germany. So what what do we do with these huge spaces we have? Have you seen communities that are successfully reconsidering use of, of vacant malls and, and large big box stores they already have? Yeah, and there there are examples of that um, around, and Ellen Dunham Jones wrote a fantastic book that lists a lot of them with retrofitting suburbia. Um, you know, I think I would go back first, you know, in talking about how to tackle those things is, is some of the first toolkit for thinking about what to do with those things is the land use toolkit, mm-hmm. which is, it's not as simple as just like, how do we get a new retailer into that space? So one of the biggest problems with the box space is that it was designed for a very narrow slice in time, uh, for a specific type of retailer. So when you, if you drive out from the center city on a mid-century corridor and, and you just 
just keep going out. It's like an archaeological dig of mid-century retail uh, theories. And you can see the sizes of the spaces change, the size of the parking lots change, and you can see the demand for space change. And it, it went from small with side parking lots to bigger and bigger with gigantic parking lots. And then you can see that that started to shrink. So say in Citrus Heights um, at the Sunrise Mall, the parking ratio around one of the you know first original regional malls is a lot larger than somebody would build for a regional mall today, for instance. So um, the biggest thing that people have to start tackling is looking at sort of what age of infrastructure they're tackling. Is it early mid-century or is it 80s or is it 90s? And start just thinking with their land use toolkit, what could somebody do differently there? So one of the biggest challenges that I encounter, so I'll go into communities and say, how could we reuse this box or how could we reuse these strip malls? What can we do with it? And the bottom line is, is their zoning code doesn't allow us to do anything different with it. It has to be retail. But the problem is, is there are no retailers that are interested in the size of box and the configuration of the the, the space and, and the land pattern. Um, so you can't just replace it with retail. But the problem is, is there the toolkit, the fundamental sort of zoning and code that drives that space is stopping anything from happening there. Um, so I would say just the first part of the toolkit is you got to, the tendency when things start to get bad is to overly restrict. And what cities have to do is actually allow more. They need to start waiving parking minimums and they need to allow for lot intensification. They need to allow people to be able to do um, and add new things to sites instead of, uh, you know, just like you have to reuse the box that's exactly there. And then they need to allow a different mix of uses on the site. So again, I'll give you another example from Auburn Boulevard on Citrus Heights. There's a fantastic bowling alley there. And a gentleman who owns the bowling alley also owns elsewhere in the valley a um, bowling uh, distributorship wholesaler. So he wanted to combine all that on the property of which there is plenty of room, but the underlying zoning code wouldn't allow for that lot intensification on the bowling alley lot, which is a shame because the more activity we could get going on on that site uh, would be fantastic. But it didn't allow for wholesale use, only for retail use on the street. So those are a lot of times the biggest obstacle to reusing these spaces as mixes of different kinds of space, whether it's church space or whether it's, um, which is another common reuse of old Walmarts or Kmart's or whether it's um, uh, kind of manufacturing or light manufacturing or wholesale or uh, internet sales and distributorship, mostly the zoning often stops these spaces from being something else. Yeah, we've seen these issues come up in communities all over the United States. I, I think you're right on the money related to, to zoning and parking has been a huge issue. I was just reading that one of the major retail stores, they estimate that of the land that they own, it's about 25% for the actual retail for the store and about 75% parking. So huge opportunity in those spaces. Right. Yeah, exactly. And and, and it's interesting because if you look, there is actually a kind of... Um, so let's say there's a place in the 70s and 80s that started with, um, particularly in the 70s, huge parking ratio. So so like those old Kmarts, they're so far away from the street, like you can't even see them when you're driving. It's like they're a mile and a half from the street. They have so much parking. So what's interesting is, is what a lot of those owners did. And unfortunately, 
a lot of owners in, in these mid-century communities just sort of respond to the market and do whatever they want, not recognizing that these companies will abandon those sites within five years if it's no longer relevant. So they took these deeply recessed buildings and then they built all these pad sites right on the front of them on the street because it turned out, you know, by the, by the 90s, that's what everyone wanted. They wanted visibility and to be closer to the street. But what's interesting about that is then they render that backspace that's so far recessed, completely um, not very valuable as retail space. And then that space continues to struggle. And then over time, that front pad space becomes less desirable and sort of the cycle begins anew. And unfortunately, I would say in most communities, you know, like that, you have an owner group that is responding to national trends and national companies who have a different goal in mind than what's good for the local community, than what's good for the local retail health. And and by local retail health, I don't mean like just local companies. I just mean, you know, really on a bottom line level, your retail space should slightly lag demand in your community so that your retail space can be successful. But instead, what we do is just treat retail zoning like a magic wand. And no matter what our demand or population is, we just keep running around and expanding our retail space as if we're not sort of sanctioning the wholesale abandonment of our existing retail. So it's just really important to think about um, how do you help even ownership groups and community groups think about and how do cities think strategically about their retail zoning as this sort of asset that that really needs to not be too far ahead of demand or you're just going to render everybody unsuccessful. And, and like, like I said, the nationals don't, they're making a decision based on, like, if you're Safeway, you're making a decision based on your competition with, with Thriftway and Kroger's. You're not making a decision based on, does this community really need another grocery store? Mm-hmm. And Michelle, but do you think that the, the local government is making decisions, land use decisions based upon what the market needs as opposed to the opportunity for tax revenue, right? So I think that, you know, people come and shop from other communities I think part of the reason why we have so much retail space is that I don't think communities do that kind of analysis in terms of how much retail do we need for this our community. Their analysis is more based on how much I think is based more on how much you know sales tax revenue will we generate by having this space. Yeah, so that's really common in communities is they're just thinking in the short term, uh, especially in this era of uh, a lack of desire to tax ourselves to pay for essential services. So so sales tax is sort of a fundamental reality for most states in the country. And most regions are just thinking about, you know, how do we get more? And again, they're not thinking about how they're cannibalizing and, and, and creating instability in their long-term retail market. So I think it's completely true that local communities aren't thinking strategically about that it's kind of the short-term hit of, of trying to infuse kind of more spending dollars by, by adding a store. I think the second piece of that is, is the alchemy of a quote-unquote market study. So I'm not generally a super huge fan of market studies because you can kind of make them say whatever you want. So, you know, I, I don't know. I think you can make the case that every community has a lot of leakage. <laughs> I think you can make the case that like every small community needs a grocery store and every small community needs a men's clothing store. Like there are just these common things that come up in uh, market studies. And it's really interesting how often I get involved in communities where I'll see the market study and then I'll just give it the smell test. Like I'll look at a small community and and maybe we'll see they've got three grocery stores, fairly healthy. They're all doing pretty well. And the market study will say, hey, they can handle a fourth grocery store. And you know what? That doesn't pass the smell test. Like I, I don't think you could add a fourth grocery store to that community without cannibalizing the existing grocery stores, which frankly would be stupid. But the market study says, 
says it would be fine and it would be absorbed fine. So I think market studies are overly relied upon. And I think they can be kind of like parking studies and traffic studies. If you have the money, like the big boys do, I think you can make them say whatever you needed to say to kind of justify the, the, the expansion of the retail, unfortunately. So it's a game that local municipalities, it's a very sophisticated game. They're not bringing the same toolkit to the table as the nationals. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I just wanted to add too on the the sales tax revenue. You mentioned that's short sighted, and the other reason it's, it can be short sighted is thinking about the fact that if you have these big box stores, you know you're not necessarily using your retail zoning as an asset because really we should be thinking about per acre what is the tax revenue you're bringing in. And Joe Minicosi, our friend, does a lot of great work on this. Highlighting the fact that even mixed-use development, if it's infill and it's taking, you know, it's going higher versus scaling out in terms of the development, you can actually bring in a lot more property tax and sales tax revenue per acre than a a sprawling store where you have a huge, you know, 75% in some case of that land is going towards parking. You're not getting, you're not getting any tax revenue from that acreage. So it's just another way of, of looking at this problem. Yeah, that's exactly right. Here's a great example. El Paso. So the city of El Paso, Texas has, you know, certainly sprawled like most other cities in the country. They have a lot of retail that's further out. When I was there, you know, it's like, hey, I want, you know, the best Mexican food I can get in El Paso. And they said, great. And we drove like 30 minutes out of town. Like we're right on the border, but we drove 30 minutes out of town to a pad site in a, in a mall to, to go to this restaurant, which I found sort of interesting. But there's this district in El Paso that is there. It's one of their oldest districts. It's mostly, it's right downtown, but it's, it's sort of two and three story buildings and it's right next to the border. And it's where a lot of the Mexicans come across the border order to shop. And it's very dense. And what's fascinating about it is within El Paso, a lot of people sort of look down on that district as well. It's just, you know, this kind of messy, not neat, not national shopping district. But the irony is, is it generates more more sales tax revenue than, you know, than anywhere else in El Paso. So yeah, so so it doesn't, you're not actually booking the win when you put in the giant Walmart, because not only are you displacing your local retail scene, and not only are you displacing that local wealth, because the people who own those businesses are keeping their wealth in the community, and they're investing in the community. So yeah, you get some jobs with Walmart, but they're very low paying, and you're not uh, building and keeping the wealth in the community. But like you say, at the end of the day, the return per acre is very low. Right. I want to build on, I know you've done a lot of work on this, this district concept and, you know, we, stores can be anchors to draw people to a destination, but oftentimes it's, it really is that larger environment that's shaping and impacting whether a store is successful or not. So can you talk a little bit about strategies to help make streets or community corridors more of a destination? So I think some of, and and again, it depends upon the, uh, kind of the infrastructure that you're working from, but going from the concept of sort of a mid-century corridor, which just to identify its characteristics, it's it's usually those places that were developed in the, the ones that are struggling the most right now are the corridors that were developed in the sort of 60s and 70s and 80s. And they have smaller lots and they were usually those kind of farm to table roads that were state highways or things that were close to it that people used to use to come into town. Um, so they don't have the lot size and the parking and the, the traffic accounts or freeway access that that uh, the bigger box wants today. So they're kind of left in this, but they're not cute downtown infrastructure. So they're sort of these in-between places that probably uh, struggle the most. So one of the biggest mistakes that these districts make is they 
there's again, it's the national model for creating anything, which is if you don't have an anchor uh, tenant, then everything falls apart. So everything is is based on the anchor. So when you're working on revitalizing a district, and this is true whether it's a small town or whether it's a a lot of times you can't attract an anchor. So you need to say like, okay, I'm going to set that to the side. What what else can I do? So on a mid-century corridor, one of the first things that I do is is actually I, I troll the corridor and, and I want to find out what the most interesting businesses are on the corridor and what the anchors actually are right now. Because what's funny is, is everyone will always tell me, oh, we don't have an anchor. But you know what? That street has an anchor. It's not um, a Trader Joe's or it's not a big grocery store or it's, you know, sort of not a giant clothing store. It's not a Nordstrom's. But um, I'm going to go back to Citrus Heights and Auburn Boulevard. Uh, Harris Gas is a huge anchor on that street. It is the oldest business on that street. It was there before the city even existed. And they bring uh, welders, medical people, artists, anyone who needs industrial gases. This whole array of people from an entire region comes to Harris Gas for different kinds of supplies and interesting use of those supplies. Um, that is absolutely an anchor. Another business on that street, and, and that was an anchor that maybe, you know, traditionally when they were looking at planning was not valued because it's not a straight up retail use, which is crazy. So, uh, and then the second business that was on that street that was really fascinating to me was a business called Abadaba. And they rent literally everything from sort of like earth moving equipment and backhoes to uh, popcorn makers and party supply equipment, which is really freaking cool. Um, so what I like to do is find out where there are those anchors and those regional draws and businesses that are bringing people in from this wide trade area. Usually they have that component of being industrial retail in some way. Um, And then how do you work with the city to help showcase that and leverage that and then think about how to build that sort of into the identity of the street. So for mid-century corridors, a lot of times the the identity and brand you're going to try and tap into is uh, kind of local sales and service. And there's going to be this big element of service that might have a light industrial kind of component to it. So it's, it's usually it's this piece of kind of building off of what is there and looking at what is able to be successful there right now and then trying to authentically build off of that and express it and show it in a more dynamic and interesting way. Yeah, and speaking of, uh, you know, a more dynamic and interesting experience with the threat of e-commerce and the fact that some 50% of people have Amazon Prime membership, what can these local businesses in particular do to have a more dynamic experience that can compete or complement e-commerce offerings? The one thing that I say to all businesses and communities right now is that, again, retail is going back to a lot of, uh, it's going, well, I guess I would just say this, retail and service are going away from commoditization. And this is true if you're a lawyer, if you're a doctor, um, you know, people just self-diagnose on the internet now, and you're going to be able to get more and more medical services online. And same with the lawyer. Are you going to go to your lawyer? Or are you just going to troll around and find an LLC agreement? Everything that you do that's brick and mortar, everything that's in person is really going to have to have fundamental elements of a really positive experience, expertise and knowledge, and this sort of um, just service that, that you can't get through the online experience. And the fact that a lot of online stores, like say Warby Parker, um, are, are opening brick and mortar stores or Amazon, it shows you that there is this intrinsic connection to brick and mortar and, and 
and retail and service experiences, but you have to really execute on the experience. So I think, first of all, just one of the biggest challenges is that, you know, in the mid-century era, which we've been coming out of for a while, everyone got into just commoditization and didn't really care about the experience. And retail on a national level was really run by accountants. And, and frankly, they're really horrible at the experience. So that's really a big part of what we try to focus on is just, again, being authentic, but backing up and saying, um, I call it the improve what you have toolkit. So if you have a mid mid-century corridor, what are some of the things that you can do to help that corridor improve? You're going to be looking at that collection of local business. So to go back to Auburn Boulevard in Citrus Heights. So one of the things that we worked with the city on, they created, I I wouldn't call it a facade improvement program. I would just call it a, um, you know, sort of amp up your your retail game uh, improvement program at the city. And they were trying to really look at how do we create processes where we are collaborators and partners in, in improving what we have instead of maybe being the land use police. So how do we reward what we want to see? And so there's a great example there recently where over the counter, there's a vacant restaurant on the street, very classic mid-century small windows you couldn't see in, nothing that activated the street. Everything in Northern California is beige, right? So it's, it's, I call it the, uh, beige stucco and stack stone finish, which is the Northern California design finish that everyone puts on every building. So um, if you want to get people's attention, if you want to create something that's interesting, if you want it to be a place that people want to go and explore and stop and look at businesses, then your buildings and your businesses need to show us something about the experience they're going to offer. So the retail experience happens before you walk in the door. So this, these two restaurateurs, they were both tenants. They came with a, a plan to take this mid-century um, building that was beige and didn't have a lot of windows. And they were going to fix it up and and open a crepes and burger restaurant. And so the city recognized, hey, that's an opportunity. So they said to them, like, we have this program to help with some guerrilla development or sort of guerrilla design. I wouldn't call it facade improvement, but like, how do we do some bang for our buck changes to this plan that will help your business? So that's the improve what you have toolkit. So instead of big tax breaks for Walmart, how do you help these small businesses have a bigger impact and create a better experience. And so two of the the big things that we focused on with them was color and then creating outdoor seating. So there's activity and life on the street. So one of the the things that happened in mid-century retail is the the sanitizing of the street. Like we're, we're not allowed to use it. Like this, all these cities have rules that you can't put anything on the sidewalk and there can't be products or tables or, and, and everyone has to be inside, you know, in a box and you can't see inside and there's no exchange. So that, that all really hurts retail. So with this little mid-century building on this very busy corridor, uh, it's a fantastic red with this really beautiful blue accent color, and it's got more windows, and it has this wraparound seating area that people actually sit on. So people sitting outside and eating on Auburn Boulevard is is unusual, and eye-catching. The restaurant's been really successful, and it's a great example of a city taking a land-use process, the permit counter, and using it as an opportunity to identify partners uh, to start doing this instead of saying, we're just going to sit here and be the land use police and say like, no, you can't do this or no, you can't do that. So I use that as an example because that is this game that you're talking about. How do we help these districts improve and show what they do? It's a different kind of economic development game. It's not the big deal with the plaque at the end of it. It's it's a series of these smaller improvements with a mix of existing buildings and existing businesses. How do you help them express and show what they are? And I'm going to add one more, like Harris Gas is a great example. The the actual gas canisters are super interesting and they're very historic. Some of them are as old as, you know, they have things carved on them from World War II or earlier. 
and they're these really interesting array of colors. So visually, they're super interesting. So rather than have parking bollards, they should have these canisters that are no longer usable and their metal should be inset and used as parking bollards. And they're very colorful. So you could even use them to create this fence on the sides to kind of demark the property. And then because their materials are used for welding, um, they should get some of those artists who are using their store right now to create something that will hold their sign and be this big architectural piece showing us that these materials are used for welding and for art and for different metal smithing kinds of services. So there are all of these. And actually, I would say Harris Gas also operates the oldest working forge in California, um, in Auburn, California. So they also have this connection to forging. So they should be forging some interesting things for their exterior as well. So yeah, so those are there's like always a million opportunities like that to take what's there and express it in this more dynamic and interesting way. And that way, when you're going through the commercial district, there are interesting things to see and you see people and we haven't sanitized the, the street and made it blank and, and empty. So it's about sort of drawing the identity and what people do and bringing it out into the street and the sidewalk. I love it. Great examples. Your enthusiasm and creativity is certainly infectious. And I know from working with you in a number of different communities, these are strategies that work for small rural communities, for large communities with economic development staff. So this is really appropriate to a range of different communities. So thanks so much for joining us, Michelle. Unfortunately, at this time, we are out of time. So I really appreciate you having you having taking the time to join us and for um, sharing such great insight with our listeners. Well, thanks for having me. It's always, you know, I love, I could talk about this stuff for hours. So I really appreciate you having me on. So Michelle, if there are, are listeners out there who say, I need to work with this woman, how, <laughs> how do they get hold of there will be. Ah, well, my website is a good place to get kind of an overview of some of the things that I, I do and, and work on and all my contact information is there, which is www.civilisconsultants.com. And uh, civilis is just the Latin word for civil. So it's C-I-V-I-L-I-S consultants.com. Fantastic. Michelle, thank you so much. Kate, thank you for doing a great job today. And thank you all for listening. We look forward to seeing you next time on Infinite Earth Radio. Infinite Earth Radio is a podcast produced by Skio in association with the Local Government Commission. To learn more about Skio, the Local Government Commission, Infinite Earth Radio guests, or how you can make a difference in your community, visit our website at infiniteearthradio.com or join us on Facebook at www.facebook.com forward slash infinite earth radio and Twitter by following at infinite earth radio. 